Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to episode 204 of the Motorcycle Men Podcast and another interview episode for your listening pleasure. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the show, and of course, for listening to all of the Motorcycle Men episodes. If you'd like to help out the show, you can go to our website at MotorcycleMen.us, and there you can click on the Donate button if you'd like to help us out with a singular PayPal donation. And another way you can help us out is go to iTunes and give us some feedback. Good, bad, or different, doesn't matter. And while you're at it, send us an email to MotorMenPC at gmail.com, or you can go to our contact page on the website and send us a note there. We read all of our email, and it's like we will comment on it on our next show. Hey, the Motorcycle Men podcast is brought to you by Tobacco Motorwear. For the best American-made Kevlar line selvage riding jeans, shirts, jackets, and graphic tees and accessories, go to Tobacco Motorwear at TobaccoMotorwear.com. There is a special link just for Motorcycle Men listeners who want to order from Tobacco Motorwear in the show notes and on the Motorcycle Men website homepage. Or you can call them at 747-666-5741 and tell Dave and the crew that the Motorcycle Men sent you. Use that coupon code MOTOMEN when ordering. And Scorpion Helmets. Hey, for the past 15 years, Scorpion EXO has been dedicated to offering high-quality, innovative motorcycle helmets and technical apparel at an incredible value. Some of the world's best helmet and apparel designers spend countless hours developing and testing Scorpion EXO products to ensure that each and every Scorpion EXO helmet and garment will surpass user expectations. So, to learn more, go visit scorpionusa.com. I can't say enough about them. I love their stuff. Shinko Tires. Hey, whether if you're riding a sport bike, scooter, off-road, dual sport, or cruiser, Shinkle has a tire to suit your needs and riding style without breaking your bank account. So if it's time for tires for your bike, think Shinko. Go to Shinko Tire USA and tell them that the motorcycle men sent you. And, of course, Viking Bags. If you ride a cruiser, street, or dirt, or ADV bike, you need bags. You need to visit VikingBags.com. Viking has a wide selection of motorcycle luggage for most bikes to suit and meet your needs. Made with both textile materials and leather, Viking Bags is the affordable alternative to outfitting your bike for short, medium, and long-distance touring. So visit VikingBags.com and tell them the Motorcycle Men sent you. Hey, the Motorcycle Men's podcast is supporting David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. If you'd like to help out and be a part of something that actually makes a difference, Donate today to David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. Go to davidsdreamandbelieve.org to donate. Links will be in the show notes. And make sure you mention that the Motorcycle Men podcast sent you. Now, so you're out riding your bike, and you're on some remote backcountry road, and you come across this giant. He's standing in the weeds, and he's holding a hatchet. So before you panic, think about it. Or you maybe you're riding past this giant bug, or maybe some metal chickens. Or maybe a massive rocking chair. Well, these things and many, many more out there like them are from an innocent time where advertising was to get your attention, was done with quirky oddities to draw you in. And while they may be a product of a bygone era, they are now the things of wonderment and are usually on the radar of the wayward motorcyclist and vacationer. Fortunately, my guest tonight has just the resource to help you find these roadside attractions. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 204 
four of the Motorcycle Men podcast. Uh, I am Ted, your host here in the V-Twin Cafe, and joining me tonight, this is another wonderful interview episode, joining me tonight, all the way from, where are you located? North of San Francisco. North of the whole northern part of California is where you're from. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Um, Mr. Doug Kirby of uh, Roadside America. Doug, how are you doing, sir? I'm um, doing great. Yeah, just, just great, that's all? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> all right. it's a nice day. It's a nice day out here. I wish I was uh, driving around right now instead of, uh, you know, talking to you. But <laughs> Oh, well, okay. Well, <laughs> just, no, just no I totally agree. I know. I, I totally agree. I understand. So how's the weather there where you were? Oh, it's it's beautiful. It's beautiful. We, uh, you know, we, when we hit that longest day of the year, too, like, I don't know if you get this impulse, but when I know it's going to be a light at five in the morning and, and, and the sun won't go down until nine at night. Yeah, I just want to go somewhere. I want to go as far as I can and then, you know, maybe get home uh, before the sun sets. I totally understand. That's usually the way I feel about it. But usually, uh, well, this year, when was it? It was a Friday this year. It was last Friday. Yeah, unfortunately, I was working, so I really couldn't do anything. No. All right, so why don't you tell us briefly who you are and what you do? Okay, so I'm the uh, publisher and co-founder of RoadsideAmerica.com. It's a uh, guide to offbeat and unusual roadside attractions. And uh, with some friends, I've developed and operate the website, and we have a mobile app, and uh, we travel around and conduct uh, research on, on road trips we have a small team. My, my wife, Susan, is the marketing and business director, and we have an editorial and technical resource group, but you know, pretty pretty small, and uh, we're spread around the country, so it's kind of a virtual operation. It, it started as um, a book that I did with some friends, and uh, then for a period it was more of a, you know, people would say, is this your hobby? We'd say, no, it's kind of a business. It's, it's not really just a hobby, and now it, I, you know, it's a business. <laughs> All right. Well, what sparked the creation of Roadside America? I mean, I, I, it must have been, I, I imagine it's like four guys sitting around uh, in, in a living room saying, you know what we should do? Was it one of those things? Yeah, yeah. And it was, I guess I can give you a little uh, deeper background on this. Uh, uh, when I was in college, I had uh, a couple of friends and we were doing these sort of nutty creative projects. And we connected up with uh some of the guys at other uh, university, universities around the country who had college humor magazines. We had our own student uh, humor magazine. And uh, after college, we all started to gravitate towards New York City, where things seemed to be going on. It was sort of a period after things like National Lampoon and uh, Saturday Night Live oh, yeah. had become these big things. And you went to New York if you wanted to get into that humor writing field. And uh, it was really exciting. A lot of things going on, people trying different things. Nobody was making any money from it, uh, but it was just this passion for the creativity. So we uh, we came up with this idea of doing a book on uh, roadside attractions because nobody had really done one uh, before, or at least not the way we were envisioning it. So uh, we well, let me ask you: Was was um, uh, the New Jersey magazine Weird New Jersey was that available at the time? No, no. In fact, those guys, they were fans of ours. They came along probably five years after our first oh, book. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. And we, to interrupt you, but go ahead. So, yeah, no, and that, that that's actually uh, great because uh, we, I used to live in New Jersey, 
and uh, we'd get together with those guys sometimes because it was in the early days when they were just sort of photocopying it as a, a newsletter. Right. Uh, and we had already done the book, so they were sort of interested. And it, it, it's interesting because we started in two paths. We started at the at the you know national level. We wanted to do the whole country, which was probably the, the dumber way to do it because <laughs> it's impossible to do all the cool places you yeah. know and in, in, in one lifetime. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so we had done this uh, book. We shopped it around to uh, publishers, uh, and this is back in the, uh, the mid-1980s. And it, nobody was really interested in doing a book like we wanted to do because uh, they didn't really understand why somebody would want this uh, type of tourism. It all didn't, didn't sound like the kind of things people would want to take vacations to see. And uh, there also at the time there had been some books of uh, I don't know pictures of diners and things that didn't sell very well, so we were tending to get the the heave ho out the door oh, as see, yeah. uh, oh hey you guys uh, great idea but it doesn't seem like it'd be a profitable book you know go somewhere else so we finally uh, managed to convince Simon and Schuster that it would be a cool book to have out there, and then we did the calculation of what what it would cost us to do the travel and pretty much any money they gave us for an advance was used up right away and. We realized, well, this is now a labor of love because you know we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to make any money on the front on on this, and um, we started to put together uh, sort of a conceptual approach for the uh, for the project that was a a little different than what we had seen before. Uh, there were books around where people had traveled and uh, written guidebooks. But they tended to look at these attractions as sort of uh, kitschy things you would hold at arm's length and just sort of remark on how kitschy they are and, and you know, or that they're tourist traps. And our approach is more embrace the tourist trap. This, if somebody's trying to fleece you of money and you go in there knowing it, you can actually get a sort of enjoyment out of the visit. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the guys, Ken Smith, who was uh, – that continues to be uh, the senior editor on this thing, he he was in charge of the boring tour. So he actually looked at all the places we were going to be investigating and picked out the ones that would be the most boring. And then he strung it together into a seven-day whirlwind boring tour. So, you know, it was a little different approach than the normal travel guy. Yeah. But, you know, it's like all this stuff is history. And so why wouldn't anybody be interested in it? I know that, in I mean, back then in the 80s, there wasn't much of it, but... Starting in the 90s, there was this huge RV um, traveling thing going on. And even today, uh, RV travelers, are just, it's amazing. Of course, motorcyclists, of course. But did, did it turn out to be more of a daunting task than you originally thought it was going to be? Well, yeah, it was uh, once we got going on it, we realized sort of simultaneously that uh, this was something really cool that needed to be documented and that it was going to be really hard to document because back when we started, within a few years of our first book coming out, there were dozens of books, all, you know, there was an Elvis book, there was a dinosaur book, you know, all of a sudden there was a cottage industry of these kind of offbeat attraction guides. When we did it, it was, it was new and uh, the tourism bureaus and the chambers of commerce actually didn't want to tell us about the places we were interested in. We, you know, we wanted the little gritty museums or the, right. you know, the sort of oddball, uh, you know, offbeat artist places and things. And that isn't exactly what they wanted to to promote in most towns. Now that's not true anymore. So some of this probably sounds sort of foreign, but uh, but yeah, back then we uh, 
we had some trouble finding the places. What we tended to find is you'd go to something like an Elvis museum and the owner would be, you know, cool. And they'd tell you about another cool guy in the next town doing some weird thing. And so right. we'd work our way through that sort of word of mouth network. Um, and, and, you know, again, you wouldn't do that now. You would just ask Siri to tell you where to go. <laughs> yeah. Now, well, in the beginning, now, when was Roadside America the website? When was that first made public? Okay, so the uh, the book was in 86. The first book was in 86. The, the website went live in um, 1996. Wow. And that was pretty early. We actually had, uh, in 94, we had done a coast-to-coast -coast, uh, tour. Uh, we called them hyper tours back then. But we would plan out a way to, to drive hundreds of miles each day and see, you know, 10 or 12 places a day. And some of them we would coordinate in, in advance and some of them we would just happen upon uh, on the road. Um, but uh, we sort of dipped our toe into doing the, um, the online stuff. Back then it was, it was ridiculous how you did it. Uh, you know, you would, there was no ability to really do anything from the car. So, um, <laughs> I know. No, and, I, and I remember like we, we got, uh, we left from out here from San Francisco. We went over to Apple headquarters because we contacted someone there and they gave us a couple of experimental digital cameras because digital cameras were just starting to come out right. around that period. And Apple was just starting to test a beta software. So they loaned us some cameras and we drove off on the road with, with all this, you know, borrowed equipment. And then each night we were trying to hook it up in the motel or in a, you know, convenience store. And we would shoot back the uh, text and video and photos back to, uh, it was Wired Magazine, you might be familiar yeah, yeah. with those guys. So they were just starting their website. And uh, we were doing what, what we called a virtual vacation. And right, it, I was going to ask seemed, you about that. Yeah, and it seemed like nobody was doing that at that point. And, you know, because, again, it's something now, it's commonplace for people to do real-time Instagram and, uh, you know, showing what they're doing at the moment. Right. Uh, but back then it was very unusual. So what we would be doing is writing about our experiences through the day, actually sitting in the car while somebody was driving. I remember sitting at one point with a shirt pulled over me so I could see the laptop screen so I could edit the video so that we'd have it ready to, to upload when we got into the hotels. <laughs> so, so, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty interesting. It was like that, the bleeding edge, um, you know, and a lot of stress around that stuff because it all didn't, didn't work quite right. Um, well, I was gonna, well, that was going to ask you that. Now, the Internet was really, really infantile at that time, you know, so yeah. how, that must have been you must have had some serious challenges with that. How was yeah. that for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like Grandpa talking about this, but, you know, you used to call it the World Wide Web. Yes. And I remember that summer. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that summer we were planning it and we talked to the Wired folks and they said, so uh, your reports will be going on AOL and onto the World Wide Web. And I remember not knowing at all what that was. I thought, is that some, you know, collective California thing that people, you know, sort of float <laughs> in a hot tub and do? So, so uh, anyway, we, we did that trip and that was pretty exciting. And we, we had done these uh, very intense trips in the past and written about them in magazines. Uh, and so we had our, our sort of thing going uh, through that whole, whole period. Um, but once we were on the web, then we started to get much more interaction from other like-minded fans or just fans of the stuff. They might not know who we were, but they 
you know, would like the twine balls or the, the muffler men or, you know, whatever, whatever we were writing about. Yeah. So, uh, so, it, and we started, you know, it, it's interesting because when we first did the books, you're an author and you, you know, we do a publicity tour and we get occasionally mail from fans, but you have no interaction with fans. And uh, the web changed that. It changed to where we had fans to where it's like, well, they're not even fans. They're actually people who have taken what we've done. And now they're, you know, they're doing going to places we can't go to. Right. You know, I, yeah. I can't, you know, I had one guy um, who uh, we were tracking down a, a Uniroyal gal, which is one of the fiberglass statues that looks mm-hmm. like Jack Kennedy. And it was rumored to be moved from one town to another. And uh, some, somehow we put that news online and I got an email from somebody who said, I'm going to cut work tomorrow and try to track that down. And, and I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. You're going to like, you know, risk your job to go chase this fiberglass statue. And then he said, and if you get anybody else reporting in on it, uh, you know, page me. And I thought, well, you know, cause this is back when you had pagers. Yeah. So, so it, that's even crazier because he thinks we've got an army of people <laughs> you know, like looking for, you know, Frankenstein's monster on the hillside. Right. And I'm going to warn him so he doesn't waste his time looking in the wrong place. So that's when I realized the web was really, you know, a different uh, interactive charged experience. Uh, and, well, and it was it was pretty exciting. Well, I imagine that once dial up started to fade away, it, it probably improved dramatically at that point. Uh, yes. Although what's interesting is when we did the early website, you know, the one of the virtues, well, and not to belabor this too much, but when I first started doing the web on that early tour, I was used to doing graphics and things from my, uh, I, I had a, a job where I was an art director and, and would do graphic design and things. So I was used to making uh, photos and things, fairly large file sizes, because you put them on a CD, yeah. ROM, or whatever they were back then. When you went on the web, you couldn't put like a three or four hundred k file size. You had to make something that was really tiny, like three k, so that it could be yeah. shot through the little <laughs> tiny line. And so, so when we did that early website, everything had to be really tiny. And and you know the advice was if it takes longer than two seconds or you know five seconds to load, they're going to leave your site. You know, so they kind of put this terror into you that. Don't put any big photos, you know, just so. So what happened was then we went through a period on the Internet where the bandwidth grew. Everybody could look at bigger things. And then when the uh, cell phones came along or the smartphones like the iPhone, we went back to, oh, make everything really small because (laughs) nobody wants to use up their their bandwidth allotment on your your giant photos. So, you know, that's been interesting over the over the years, how that goes up and down. Oh, my God. That's so funny. Now, to date, let's talk about attractions. To date, how many roadside attractions have been documented? Well, if you're talking about our rules of inclusion and what we've documented, we've got about 15,000 in in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, In in Canada is actually, uh, you know, there are more attractions in a state like uh, California or Florida than there are in, in all of Canada, but Canada does have a good chunk of places to see and um what we uh in the early days we were just taking tips we were writing stories about the places we went to and tried to organize it as best we can but over time we put it all in a database uh we mapped everything and uh that's how we're able to do things like the iphone app because you can look and see precisely where these attractions are okay now how do you determine what 
qualifies or how something qualifies for a roadside attraction for like well, for roadside America? Um, I, well, we have some basic things. We've always applied the, our editorial judgment about the worthiness of an attraction, either whether it's our own story pursuits or betting tips that come in. But first thing we do is, does it make us laugh? And, you know, it doesn't have to be a big belly laugh. It can just be, are we sort of laughing nervously? Like this is something we shouldn't laugh at. And okay. that's sort of like, in a, you know, it's like, okay, uh, you know, a big goofy statue, that maybe makes you laugh. Uh, does a sight where a train derailed make you laugh? Well, it probably shouldn't make you laugh. But if somebody made like sort of a amateurish monument to it, you know, then maybe it has some merit to be included. Uh, and then we have rules like, does it seem out of place? Uh, is it over the top? Is it exuberantly patriotic or spiritual? Um, so, you know, like you see a landlocked ship or a submarine, that's weird. If the ship is in the water, well, okay, that's not weird. What is it about the ship that would make it be included? If you see the Eiffel Tower uh, somewhere in the United States, in a town named Paris, which actually there are several towns named Paris, at yeah. least three have little Eiffel Tower up because that's that's a little strange. So um, so that was uh, another aspect that we look for, and then also we look for things that are it, that are amazing efforts by individuals. Uh, and you know these days you might consider some of the the work of a hoarder, but a lot of things we go to are, you know a tower of hubcaps or, you know, a, a museum stuffed with crazy collectibles or something that somebody labored for their entire life to build. And we go in and look at those and, and try to appreciate them as, uh, as, you know, roadside attractions that are worth hearing the story about. Right. Are you more likely to not do like a store that sells oddities because stores come and go so fast? Well, what's interesting about the oddity stores, uh, you know, it started with uh, cabinets of curiosity. These, the old, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago, uh, a wealthy person would have a collection, a cabinet of collected oddities, a two-headed, uh, you know, calf or something, or you know, just strange freaks of nature or right. or fossils. And uh, uh, then museums. There's medical museums. There's natural history museums that have some of this stuff. So the oddity uh, stores have sort of, uh, you know, been able to go in and, and leverage this interest in this stuff. The problem we have is if there's only two oddity stores in the whole country, then those make them very unique. But if every town has one and they all have the same stuff, yeah. then it starts to become like a friend. It's like, you know, we you can't find Starbucks listed on our site. You can't find <laughs> every every state and county park that has a nice picnic table on our site. None of that. And sometimes when people send us places they want to include, you know, I, I, I guess it's, I sound like a weirdo, but I'll say like, well, um, is there anything about this place? Is it maybe cursed? You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, just give me something, <laughs> give me something why we would include this otherwise normal sounding things when, when, and we've got some advice on our website. Uh, if the first word that occurs to you about an attraction is that it's beautiful, then you should probably think twice about submitting <laughs> to us because, you know, that's not what we're looking for. We don't want the scenic landscapes. We want the uh, the place where the doomed Indian maiden, you know, jumped off the rock and then the winds brought her back up onto the rock and, you know, those kind of things. Okay. So how does someone submit uh, a site or something that they found? 
Well, we have on the website, we've always had a, a tips of mission area. It's like a, it's like a scary, almost like a tax form, I guess, where we have <laughs> fill in all this information. And you now part of it is maybe our laziness because we want them to do some of the footwork oh, to, sure. to make the case. And then, but in the, in the, uh, the mobile app, we also have a way for people to submit tips and they can either submit a brand new place where they basically, you know, town, state, name, and a brief description, and maybe a photo, or they can send us an update about an existing place. And that's, that's really important to us because over time, we, uh, we see these places change, they move, they close, they reopen, and we rely on those tips coming in pretty much every day that, that allow us to change the status. And, and instantly, everybody has access like, you know, oh, you know, stop driving in that direction. That thing burned down last night. Okay. Now, what about attractions that have closed? Like, say, for example, here in New Jersey, we have Wild West City. Now, that closed many, many years ago, but yet it's still listed on your website. Now, what's the deal? Now, do you get a lot of that? Now, uh, Wild West City, actually, it's interesting because the, the news report I was looking at, I think it was just last week, looked like they had reopened. Did they really? Uh, yeah. So oh, the kid, story, really? I didn't even know that. Well, well, and part of this is we have to kind of go through and determine what tips we're getting that are misinformed or you know, we usually don't get any malicious tips, but right. just somebody who maybe didn't look carefully enough, didn't go around to the back of the parking lot to see the, the statue they think is gone. So in Wild West City's case, you know, they had some um, issues about a, an accidental uh, shooting with uh, during one of the gunfights, um, you know, and this is probably 20 years ago. So there was a period where they were a little tied up with that, but they stayed in operation through all that. That's a classic attraction. And one of the reasons that the Wild West City was in Roadside America is because it's such a far, so far east for a Wild West town. It's like yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of, it is kind of um, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, that they had a, a jingle that would play on the local TV, you know, commercials and things. So, you know, that they're, they're sort of a beloved attraction. Sure. There's a couple of those in New Jersey. There's the... Um, things that are around. There's a, an interesting uh, thing called Northlands. Yes, yes. Uh, and that's a massive miniature railroad that with landscapes that look like old Roger Dean Yes albums. And, wow. you know, it's, uh, that, that's uh, kind of an interesting thing. But, yeah, we, we try to keep on top of this stuff, and, and it is sometimes tough to figure out. We also have to figure out where uh, it starts to cross the threshold into being illegal to do something so that if we hear that something's closed and you can still see it through over the fence, we might say, well, it's closed, but you can see it over the fence. Then somebody may say, Hey, I found a hole in the fence and I crawled in. <laughs> now, now that's kind of like maybe a little bit more where you start to get into weird New Jersey territory. Cause those guys are a little bit more about getting into the swamp and yeah. picking the leeches off later. <laughs> we're, we're a little bit more, um, Think about if you went there with your, you know, you took your grandma or your kids. Like, like, is it okay? Is it cool that you could go there? Would, are you going to worry about whether they've gotten their tetanus shots? Right. And, uh, so, <laughs> you're, so you're not going to make her crawl under a fence either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Generally not. Generally not. And we sometimes we like to go to those places just out of personal interest. But then we'll come we'll come back to headquarters and say. Ah, you know, we really shouldn't write that one up because it's just an accident waiting to happen. Yeah. Well, yeah, I see uh, on the website uh, with on, with regard to your tips, you have places we skip, and you have like <laughs> everything's prefaced with no. 
Like no, no beautiful, <laughs> no normal. <laughs> so you outline pretty much everything the way it should be. That's well, pretty well, funny. So, so you can see there, there's pictures of, uh, of food, like a beautiful picture of food on a plate. It's and like, flowers, no, we don't yeah, want no, that. No. We, we, don't, we don't care. We don't care if the wait service was terrible at that restaurant. All we care is that there's old stoves on the roof and that they throw chicken out to a, a pack of raccoons that <laughs> in the window of the restaurant. You know, like, like that's what we want. So, no, uh, yeah, no serious architecture, no regular restaurants. No, yeah. what's it? Small temporary or mass produced sites. What is that? Well, that's a case where you see something and think it's really cool. And then the next town over, you see the same thing and the same thing. And you realize like the, the fat lady butt salesperson must have come through recently because you're finding them, you know, in every oh, roadside garden. So, so it, it's a, it's a thing where, uh, where the mass production there, there's uh, these little bronze statues that are being made. It's like, delightful children playing in a fountain or, you know, Abraham Lincoln sitting on a bench. And some of them at first you think, well, that's pretty weird. We'll put it in. But then when we find out there's dozens of them and they're just being sold over and over, we, we lose our interest in, in including that right. as a unique action. Uh, no low end of the big scale. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Wait, what? So, so, so one thing, uh, one thing we cover are big statues, fiberglass, concrete, things that are that are all over the uh, uh, highways that are interesting in towns and in businesses. And uh, but what happens is uh, we get tips that start to push the top down on that. So it's and and the example I try to give is like, well, if we have a 50 foot tall statue of uh, you know an accountant. <laughs> the accountant part is boring, but the fact that somebody made it 50 feet tall makes it interesting. Yeah. And then, but then if you see like a five foot tall statue of a turtle, you'd say, well, that's pretty small. But if you find out it's a statue of the turtle that saved the life of a child, then it's like, oh, okay, well then that, that's a weird aspect that sort of makes it uh, a legitimate thing for us to include, include. So we have, we have kind of a chart that we look at things. It's like, a, okay. It's like a business matrix where he's like, oh, okay, this is a, you know, the weirdness versus the, the size sort of elements come together. Yeah. And then you have yeah, uh, no, no uh, haunted no. attractions with nothing to see. So, so that's really the deal with the problem that there's pretty much everything is haunted now. You've got a lot <laughs> yeah, of, uh, pretty much. Like, you've got the, the ghosts and hunters, ghost adventures, you know, these, these fun shows, they're fun, very entertaining, but, um, it's like every single dark uh, nook and cranny in an in a old museum or anything now has a ghost in it. And uh, we, we just sort of took a position that you've got to be something that you can see whenever you visit. There's got to be some aspect of the place that makes it worthwhile. All right. Now, suppose you have a, a mansion that's been abandoned for 25 years and it's off the side of the road back about 150 feet. You can't see it from the road, but everybody knows it's there. Is something like that viable? Uh, not really for us. I mean, not. We're, we're usually not looking for a, those kind of abandoned structures, and uh, we we uh, tend to keep away from those. We look if it's something that somebody in the town at some point has decided was worth putting up signs for right. or make T-shirts for. Uh, okay. Uh, we we would do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, yeah, let's move on for that now. As far as it goes for roadways, 
where a lot of these uh, sites have been seen. Let's take Route 66, for example. Now, that seemed like to be the, the starting point for all of this. Now, would you say that in the beginning, that's like Route 66 was the catalyst for a lot of this stuff? Uh, it, it, Route 66 is really interesting in, in how it fits into this. It's, it was a very important road during the period that it was actively used for that purpose, you know, to go from Chicago out to L.A. And, and uh, all the businesses that grew up along it uh, were there because uh, there was, you know, uh, people to be served, money to be made. And uh, but, but what's interesting about Route 66 is it's it's sort of a brand now. It's like more about the brand. Yeah, I think yeah. Who are, who are on Route 66 are it's just as important to them that they can tell everybody that they did the Route 66 trip as it is that they actually saw anything worth seeing. So there are great things all along Route 66, but I would say that the country has many other highways yeah. with uh, cool attractions. They just don't have the branding. They don't have the, the drive. They don't have people coming from overseas to drive. Uh, let's see, what's a nice New Jersey? You know, Route 9 in New Jersey. Oh, yeah, I'm going to spend my vacation on that. You know? <laughs> so, so it's like like there are things all over the place. Uh, and, and one thing we have enjoyed with Route 66 because you, once you get the, the notion of the snake eating its tail, then when, as we walk into attractions that are basically attractions about Route 66, we think that's really cool. I mean, you might think like, wait, what's this? All they're doing is selling stuff with the Route 66 shield and telling me about Route 66. What is on Route 66 that's new? You know, and so there are new things. But, uh, but you know, we think there's a place for this sort of um, – you know, Route 66 pilgrimage uh, traffic. Sure. Now, did you get a lot of things off of Route 66 for uh, Roadside America? Well, we did, but in the early books, we didn't treat it at all as anything special. Oh, you know, really? it, it, actually, in, in the 80s, Route 66 was just starting to get popularized then as, as on the comeback. And uh, because our approach was we were looking for the things that weren't as popular, the more popular Route 66 was becoming, the less interest... We, we had it, but you know, we recently did a, a, a view back through all our stuff, and we do have a ton of. I think we had something like 800 places that no kidding the cordon of, of uh, Route 66. Now it depends uh, how much of a purist you are, because you know all the Route 66 experts know all the old, you know, alignments and yeah. you know, the different the road changed as it went through different cities and different parts of the country. And, uh, and then the other thing is how far off Route 66 still constitutes a Route 66 attraction. Right. So um, are you going to go drive 30 miles off Route 66 to see, you know, a guy who's got a, a bowling ball art? Or is that just now not really a Route 66 thing? So, right. Okay. Now, what well, you know, Route 66 was decommissioned in 1985. Did that have any effect at all on the amount of attractions you got? Well, we, we usually peg it that the, um, you know, we didn't start the book project until about that time. Oh, okay. And, uh, and we had all been, as kids, we all traveled with our families. You know, um, in my case, uh, I had four siblings. We'd get in the station wagon, pull in the camp trailer. My dad would take his vacation for that year and pretty much burn it up, taking us to uh, roadside attractions all over the country. So we'd right. see Walt Drug. Devil's Tower, all that stuff. So, so my feeling in this in the late '60s was 
Oh, it was really vibrant, crowded, you know, uh, everybody oh, okay. was driving everywhere. When you got into the 80s, um, you'd gone through the 70s, the gas crisis, you know, gas suddenly jumped up in price. Uh, in the 70s, you also had a little bit of a chill around things that people used to consider almost like a patriotic duty to see on the road. Now it was kind of like, ah, that's, you know, v Vietnam. How can you how can you drive around and do a vacation like that after Vietnam? So it took until the 80s for for some revival of, okay. of the interest. So I, I, even though some people maybe peg the 66 decommission to the demise of the roadside, we kind of see as a sort of a, it was uh, sort of reanimated. Oh, I get it. Now, with, with regard to roadways, I can't imagine that interstates had to have any, uh, they're not very popular for these kind of things, but what are the common types of roadways that a lot of these attractions are found on? Do you see them more on rural, urban, or suburban roads? Well, the um, the attractions that we're, we're pretty much road design agnostic, and we actually, uh, I know some people like to just travel on back roads or two-lane highways, and that's like a cool experience thematically to do on your trip. Uh, for, for us, we'll, we'll jump on an interstate if it lets us peel through you know, 200 miles and then go off into a town that's like an attraction rich area. So, so we will do that. And we, uh, but you don't actually see any of these oddities on the interstates or do you only, well, let's see, just to give you like a, an example, I was on, uh, it was I 90 through, um, South Dakota and uh, we were on our way to Wall Drug, and we saw billboards for a thing called 1880 Cowboy Town. And we knew there's this 1880 town on, south, on, the, on the highway, but it's hundreds of miles further on. Then the next billboard said something like uh, animated robots. And we were like, wow, animated robots. We got <laughs> up, and right there within like a quarter of a mile of the exit was an entire Wild West town populated totally by robots built by a retired English, he was maybe a history teacher, not an English teacher, but uh, it was the coolest thing. It was great. There was a, there were crazy, you know, half the robots were not working right, which is, you know, makes them more fun. Uh, everything was a little bit scary. We were the only ones there. Uh, so, so those kind of things, um, you know, those are always great to discover and you can find those things on a back road, but you also can sometimes find them just off an interstate. Oh, okay. What region of the country has the most attractions? Is it on the east, the west, north, south? Um, we tend to view it as there. There are a few exceptions. There are concentrations everywhere. Yeah. Alaska, Alaska, and Hawaii. You can kind of leave them out. Alaska is too big and sparsely populated, though we do have some there. And Hawaii seems to frown on uh, the kind of mainland type attractions. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's hard to drive between the islands. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> as your audience probably knows. So, uh, and uh, there's certain states that favor certain categories, like Minnesota is a great place to see giant civic statues. So these are towns that have, you know, put up a giant fish or a Paul Bunyan and, and, uh, and then you can go to a place like in Tennessee, Pigeon Forge, Gatlinburg, and Cherokee, North Carolina are all within half day's drive of each other. And those places are, are packed full with, we call them meccas. 
uh, because it's that kind of place where you can watch them make fudge and there's a haunted house and there's an observation tower and there's zip lines and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then in amongst that, you'll find the little oddball attractions, the Elvis museums, the religious museums and things like that. Okay. Is there any state in particular that has more attractions than any other state in the country? Well, as far as numbers, if I look at our database, uh, California leads in terms of quantity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's followed by Texas, then New York, then Illinois and Florida. Uh, Florida actually used to have more, but of, really? of any of the states where, you know, because usually the issue with this stuff uh, people have is they, they believe that all these places are going away, that, that they're all closing down and all this is dying off. And we've never really seen it that way. We've always seen that new things appear, new weird uh, aspects of things are uh, suddenly bubble up. But Florida is the one place that had such a concentration of classic uh, you know, alligator parks and theme parks and things. And those all dried up, or most of them dried up and went away. And then, you know, Disney World yeah. didn't help because, you know, if you're going to Florida, that's people go down there, they have, um, I don't know, I forget what the, the tally was, but it's something like people spend five days down there. They're going to spend three and a half of them at a Disney attraction, and the other day and a half are up for grabs by the other theme parks. Okay. See, I would, I would have never, ever thought Florida would have been on the top of that list, ever. You know, I would have thought states like Ohio and uh, Illinois and things like, states like that that were, like, close to urban centers probably would have been more full uh, of these attractions. Well, well also, you got to remember, you're, you're filtering it filtering it through our rules of what is an attraction. This is and true, yes. So, so like, you know, great thing I went and saw in uh, Palatine, Illinois, outside of Chicago, was uh, uh, a funeral home with miniature golf in the basement. So that's uh, uh, the guy who owned the funeral home wanted to have something to do with the basement. He set up uh, scary, like, ghost-themed hazards in, in, his, in the basement of the funeral home. And the only rule is that they can't play during an active viewing upstairs. <laughs> so because, you know, the, the noises and the shrieks that sure. are made by the little things that he set up down there would disrupt the service. Or, so so things like that maybe wouldn't have made it into a traditional uh, attraction guide or travel guide years ago. Now you see more of that stuff like you mentioned Ohio. Ohio, I think, is one of the states that kind of got hip to their, their quirkiness is something that should be marketed. And now most of the states that have this stuff have figured that out, that, uh, hey, there's an audience that will visit for just this kind of strange stuff. Okay. Uh, here's a good question for you. What is the most common roadside attraction? Okay, so I, I also went to the our iPhone app to check what our themes are. And uh, we've got for the two... Biggest rated themes are are big and animal. So what that tells me is, and I'm just going to look here real quick. Yeah, I've got like 2,588 uh, attractions that we've categorized as being big, meaning something that's you know larger than normal. And then animal, we've got 2,162. Wow. So big cow, world's largest buffalo, the world's largest prairie chicken. You know, those kind of things. And then just general, you know, just, just big uh, statues of things are, are pretty popular. Those have uh, been very popular for people out taking selfies. Okay. Uh, we actually tend to, we, we tend to see more interest in those things than sometimes in the museums. 
because the museum is harder to take a photo in. You know, it's a little little more involved taking up your time or some of these kind of things are, are very quick attractions. Okay, back up one little second here. Oh, you, did, did you say world's largest prairie chicken? Yes. Do you care to explain that? <laughs> well, that that's uh, it's in uh, Minnesota, and it's a uh, it's just a giant. You know, the, uh, some towns get a pride in a certain statue in a certain animal that lives in their region. So, if there's a certain fish or something that uh, you know anglers like to come out and catch, then that'll be the fish that you'll see. So, if it's like a catfish or a, a trout or whatever. And, uh, you know, in, in this town in Minnesota, it's a prairie chicken. So it's just, it's, it, the, the statue is weird. It looks like it's, it's leaning down, uh, pecking corn. But if you position yourself, you can make it like it's pecking you to death. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's things about, there's rules. Uh, you know, part of this stuff, all this stuff developed uh, kind of independent of one, of one another. These attractions aren't all, weren't all networked at, back then. They didn't really know of each other. So they tended to do things uh, independently and they would make mistakes. So like one thing that we've always kind of considered a mistake is the Jolly Green Giant statue in Blue Earth, Minnesota. It's a gigantic statue. It's, I think it's 50 feet tall or 55 feet tall, but it faces north. So most of the time the photos have the Jolly Green Giant in, you know, he's in the shade. He's, he's right. his yeah. body, the sun behind him. People take terrible photos with the sun behind the Jolly Green Giant. So, uh, you know, we, we always recommend for people to have their statues face to the south to find some way for people to interact with them. Don't if you have a muffler man and you put it up on top of a three story building, it pretty much knocks down the rating by at least a, at least once a smiley water tower or lower. <laughs> and that's part of our we have a weird rating system we created where. We have five smiley face water towers, and uh, if you get five towers, it means your attraction is the best. And if you get one, it means you're mildly interesting, which means it might be worth looking out of your car or you know from your motorcycle while you drive by, but you don't necessarily have to stop. Oh, I get it. Okay. Now, I want you to explain muffler men for people who don't know what a muffler man is. Okay, so... Uh, Yes, they are uh, big fiberglass statues that were popular eye catchers for gas stations and, and other businesses in the 1960s. They, they really started. Uh, they lost popularity in the 1970s. Uh, and when we did our books, we briefly mentioned some of the statues, but it wasn't until we created a Muffler Man page on our website that the tips and the sightings flooded in. And uh, the, the name Mick, uh, Muffler Men is something we came up with. They weren't named Muffler Men, but we didn't know where they came from. Nobody seemed to know where they were manufactured. Uh, and at that point, there was no real historical information on them. Uh, so we gave them nicknames. So some of the variations, there's a Paul Bunyan or a, a lumberjack. We called him a Paul Bunyan. There's one that's a large Native American chief. That was the Indian. Uh, there's a a country bumpkin that looks like Alfred E. Newman. And I think we called him the halfwit. Yes. Yes. You know? So the halfwit is just because, you know, he just it always looks goofy. And we always wondered what kind of business wants this statue out in front of them. So, uh, but of all the stuff we track, the, the big muffler men, the goofy statues got our web visitors most excited. And uh, when we started getting tips of all these other ones that we didn't know about, 
I created this map so we could track them. And then you know, the statues get moved around, so we'd have to move the, the pins on the map. And um, you know, at some point, I was contacted by the original owner of the business who had made them. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, and, and he, was, uh, he had had a business. Uh, he was very young. He bought this business in uh, Venice, California in the 1960s. He bought the molds from uh, the guy who really had uh, made the original Paul Bunyan. But uh, this, this guy, Steve Deschew, who, who I interviewed, uh, he turned it into a, a national business. He did marketing and sold these statues all over the country. He sold hundreds of them to, uh, you know, Philip 66 and to Texaco. They bought uh, a bunch of statues. And that's why a lot of these are still out there. So when he contacted me, I mean, first I thought he was pulling my leg because I thought, yeah, that's you think I'm sick and you're just going to make me think that there's one guy that had the company that created all this. And then he, he convinced me that, no, no, there was one company. And now if you look online, you're going to find a lot of other websites and people who are uh, loving tracking down the muffler man. Uh, so that has been interesting because we, you know, we, we kind of started with them as a joke. And then we sort of fell in love with them. But then we had to move on because we had to work on other stuff on oh, the sure. website and other things. But there's like a guy, uh, uh, Joel Baker from American Giants, started as a fan of ours, sent me a lot of emails, asked me questions behind the scenes about the muffler men. And then he caught the fever to the point where he started producing YouTube videos about all the, um, the figures. And he opened up his own business to repair and restore the Giants. So he's okay. actually... A, yeah, he's he's a great source now, and uh, you know, there, every so often I'll like, hey Joel, do you know we just got a tip on this? Do you know what happened to this statue? So, you know, there is this community out there of people who uh, are trying to share this information. Now we did uh, episode one ninety eight of the podcast. We talked about muffler men, and according to Wikipedia, there are eighty nine known muffler men around the country, and was it California? Uh, has 14 and New Jersey has 12. Now, do you think that there's more undocumented muffler men out there? Yeah, and I, I kind of think that that number is something that somebody came up with by just counting the, the muffler men on our map. Really? You think so? <laughs> so yeah, yeah, because because Wikipedia isn't an original source. It, it always oh, no, yeah. derived, it's derived from other places. So, so somebody who was obviously... Uh, interested in them, uh, wanted them to have a page aside from the page that we provide and, uh, and to try to give some description, but, but there's, there are a couple hundred that we track as muffler men. Okay. It depends. It depends how you, uh, categorize, let's say like the Uniroyal gals are, uh, smaller figures made by international fiberglass, the company from Venice, California. Mm-hmm. They're not the same mold as the, the bunions and the and the gas station attendant and, and those characters. So it all depends where you draw the lines on that. And we think there's uh, other ones out there, probably most of the ones that are um, ever going to be found have been found, but every so often something will turn up in the back of a barn or uh, somebody will find some fragments of one and then they'll be able to get it restored. Okay, now the, take for example the... Uh the spaceman it's it's a muffler man but he's just holding a rocket and he's got a space helmet on and he's painted silver is that the same mold as let's say the paul bunyan mold it, it, if you look at the legs and the feet and the uh torso and the arms it probably is 
the accessories that would have been sold by international fiberglass would have been the space helmet and maybe the rocket, although the rocket may have just been made locally. But I think that might have been an accessory. So they had a catalog and they had all the accessories. So you could say, I want a pirate for my, uh, you know, Seaside Heights boardwalk attraction. And then, and then you'd be able to say, well, I want it with a peg leg, an eye patch, oh, and uh, okay. a, hook, a hook hand. You know, and then they would either make it there with those pieces and ship them to you. Or later in its life, you could say, hey, my Paul Bunyan, uh, you know, like massage parlor went out of business. <laughs> now now I, I want to use him for uh, my financial advisor's, uh, you know, uh, office or whatever. And so you then would get some new pieces made that would kind of let him take on a new personality. Oh, I get it. I get it. So I could, if I wanted to. I could get my own muffler man. Uh, well, the, the, you could now. There was a long period where all that was available were the originals. And then, you know, the people who know how to work with fiberglass, uh, of course, know that once you have something, you can make molds and make new ones. Yeah. So one thing is we would go out and look at something and say, well, all the seams and all the, the pants uh, creases on this muffler man's pants are sort of like, not great, this must be a, a second or third generation knockoff. You know, so, so there'd be sort of this quality thing where you'd find something that wasn't an original uh, muffler man. It was something that had been, uh, it's like a bad photocopy, you know, like <laughs> office joke hung on the wall. You know, it just had been photocopied too many times. So, uh, so, but there are some guys out there now, some businesses that are making new muffler men with pretty good molds based on the old ones. Oh, okay. And they're producing new ones. Yeah, so you could you could get one made. They're 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 pretty expensive. Really? Um, yeah. There was a period where uh, if somebody had a muffler man and they're you know they'd gone out of business and they knew what to do with it, they might say, "Get this off my parking lot," you know, and I and I won't charge anything. Just take it away. <laughs> then there was sort of a period where like, well, you know, five hundred dollars and take it away. And then it sort of hit a point where like people were bidding on them on ebay and oh, you know really? things were costing like 12 or fifteen thousand dollars. oh my god you're crazy oh that's crazy oh my god because here's the thing i own a farm in upstate new york and my nearest neighbor is a mile and a quarter away i am virtually in the middle of nowhere i think it would be really cool to put a muffler man in the middle of one of my pastures just standing there for no reason at all well, I don't know how close you are to up near Woodstock and Bethel, but in Bethel, New York. That's uh, that's further south than me. I'm closer to Cooperstown. Okay, okay. Yeah, there, there's a, but down in uh, Woodstock, there's a hippie muffler man with a tie-dye shirt. <laughs> so they tried to make him. He's next to Yasker's Farm. Which, oh, really? Oh, that's funny. Yeah, which was the, the farmer who owned the property. So, uh, so yeah, there, there's. That would be cool if you got that. It, now, what, what you got to consider is you're going to encourage a a procession of traffic and, and worshipers. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I'll charge admission. <laughs> hey, now, is there maps available that people can actually go to uh, either on your website and, and look to see where things are? Yeah. If you just go to roadsideamerica.com, we have a link right off the homepage to our muffler man page, which has a lot of information about how to identify the muffler men. And there's a map. Okay. Uh, we used to years ago. We had a, this manual tracking chart we kept that you know we, every little detail we were putting in, and then we just said, "Yeah, let's just sort of automate it." So the map now is more automated. Oh, okay. And if, if I got a tip uh, tonight that uh, 
a muffler man moved from, uh, you know, Bakersfield to Barstow, California, we would put in the new coordinates and then tomorrow morning people are going to be able to drive and see it at the new location. Oh, how often do you get new tips about new attractions? They're coming in as we're speaking here. Really? Yeah, we get about, right, this time of year we're getting about 40 a day, 50 a day. Oh, my God, really? So how do you sort through all that? Well, half of them are people who haven't read our guide of what not to send. No. So, <laughs> so, so, and, and we, we are, we consider them carefully. There are some cases where, but again, it's a slippery slope. If you make an exception, it means it's going to encourage somebody to go lower and, you know, a place that isn't even as good as, you know, what you just let squeak in. So, um, and we have a lot of people who have figured out what we like. We have some people who everything they send us, we put up. Uh, we have some people who, who, uh, you know, I think they realize after they hear from us on a couple of rejections that maybe there's another, another travel guide out there for me, you know? Yeah. Oh, wow. So basically the website is in a constant state of flux. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, everything's changing. And actually stories, like if you read a story that we wrote, uh, 10 years ago about a place we visited, yeah, you might go back and read the story and it'll be a different story now because we'll go in and assess and say, oh, those those George Bush jokes just don't work anymore. You know, let's <laughs> so tell us about that. The new app that you have, the road, that new roadside America. app. So it's, uh, it's, it's new only in geologic time because we've been doing it since 2010, but, uh, but it's, it's new in the sense that, uh, for us, it allowed us to get, uh, the roadside America app is on the iPhone and it's, uh, tapping into the database we use for the website. Mm-hmm. So it's got a, a big overlap with what we have on the website. Uh, but what it does is it works in real time um, and shows what's near you. So if you pull over in a town or you're driving along, you can see exactly what's at the next exit on the interstate. So you're asking before about things on the interstate. That's, you know, years ago, we do our own research trips and get home and realize we passed a really great thing. It was only three blocks away. We, you just couldn't see it with this. It's less likely you'll miss some of those established things. Uh, and it also gives you the chance to spot new things. And, uh, you know, somebody can spot something, snap a photo, send us a, a short tip. It gets right to us. We can let them know. Um, yeah, this looks good. Or, or we might say, uh, you know, no, this isn't quite quite what we want. Or go back and take a, a better photo. And you know, some people will do that. Some people are just more using the information as it is and not necessarily uh, providing anything new for us. Okay, so people can submit things through the app. Yeah, yeah, no, and we get a lot of we get a lot of tips through the app. Uh, we get a lot of we've noticed more people like uh, looking at photos. You know, as we're moving into a world where people don't write anymore and don't read anymore. Mm-hmm. They like to look at Instagram type sure. photos. They like to, to see things. And, and you know, that's a legitimate thing. You want to look and say, before I drive two hours, is this going to be worth my while? Uh, and photos are, are a great way to do that. Uh, you know, we're sort of from the, we're the long form, the old world where, you know, we're going to write 500, 700 words about an attraction and people aren't necessarily going to read that in the app. You know, mm-hmm. they may, they may, maybe somebody sit in the back and, Maybe they'll want to get into really reading all the details. Uh, and then the tips, we also in the app will have the latest tips. So if somebody says, oh, um, you know, the good parking is behind the, the pond or 
uh, don't bring an RV up here because there's nowhere to turn around or, sure. you know, those kind of things. Okay. Noel, let me ask you this. How many of these attractions have you been to? <laughs> Come on. Well, man, it's, it's, it's definitely thousands. Uh, it's, uh, really, you know, over the course of time, it's, it's, yeah, it's many thousands. And, uh, I've been back to places where, uh, there's certain familiar routes. So, so of course, you know, East, West, North, South kind of routes, uh, I-95, the things up and down that corridor. I've been uh, to many places over and over, like South of the border, you're familiar with oh that God, one yes of course so so south of the border uh in our first book was one of the seven wonders of roadside america no other travel book would ever have named south of the border as a as one of the seven wonders right, right. so but rv was like it was so over the top for what it was doing uh the you know sc- the most screaming tourist attraction thing ever billboards in <laughs> hundreds of miles <laughs> out of direction oh my God. with like with like offensive puns you know which like over time have gotten more and more offensive to the world you know so (laughs) so part of this is you know there are things that we could laugh about in the past and everybody could was sort of in on the joke but now it's you know it's a little tougher with some of that stuff so um, (laughs) i have to imagine that in the early years uh when you're going on a family vacation you would say no let's not fly let's drive there so you could see these attractions and i guess after a time it got old huh yeah, well, no, and actually, as a kid, I don't. We didn't fly anywhere. We always drove. We we uh, we drove. We camped. We never stayed in a. We usually didn't stay in a motel. It was all camping, and uh, you know, it was uh, it was like an adventure. Those are things I've shared it with my siblings. We have old family movies. My dad had an old silent sixteen millimeter movie camera that he shot <laughs> footage. Oh of, of old faithful going off sure. and the bears, you know, Oh, we kids go feed the bears, you know, Oh, you know, go, go dangle off the side of the, you know, the grand Canyon. It's <laughs> a lot of stuff that, that is funny to look at now. Cause it's like, man, you know, those kids, they should have been medicated. Yeah. And <laughs> hey, can you give some general good tips on how best to navigate uh, the roadside America website and find things? Yeah, the the website's designed for a couple of audiences. So if somebody's coming in with the mo- mode of um, just show me crazy stuff, you can pretty much wander anywhere in it because we've interlinked. You know, if you go to a state, you'll see uh, there's there's a map page in the uh, upper navigation, mm-hmm. and that links the map page has a link to every state, and every state has a favorites page, and those are our favorites, the things we've written uh, longer stories or reviews of. And then on each of those pages, there's an everything uh, link. And that's a list of everything in that state. So you look at the everything list, you're going to see just hundreds and hundreds of things. And a lot of them are going to be mildly interesting things. You should just maybe chuckle about but keep driving. And some of them are going to be the top attractions that you should spend a half a day at. So that's a, a, a main way to get around. And then we also have on the site a tool that we created called My Sites where you can as you're going through the site, you can accumulate places. And uh, let's say you decide you're going to do a trip to Maine and you've picked out uh, a dozen things you definitely want to see on your trip. You can check those off in my sites and then and then go in and name the trip, uh, produce a route, and then output it to a GPS device or, you know, just a printed uh, thing you can follow. So, okay. And you can save it to your sites and then you can actually create a route from that. Oh, okay. 
That's really yeah, cool. I, think, I like that. Yeah, we have people who, you know, that's the people who plan ahead. Then we have the people who just, I'm in Maine. I want to see something. Uh, what does Roadside America say? And they'll just go to the website and do essentially the same thing where it's like, oh, okay, here they say this is open. Uh, on the, the uh, iPhone app, one advantage of that is it has the phone numbers built into it so you can call the attraction, which we advise actually doing for a lot of these little places, is call and say, hey, you guys open today? And they'll, you'll know. You'll know that, uh, that they didn't close unexpectedly. We've had uh, things where we've been on the road and we'll get to a town and all the museums are closed because the volunteers went out to deliver meals on wheels around town or something. You know, it'll be... Right. Be a perfectly good reason why we're not going to get to see any museums that day, but it's it's not great for us. So we always advise to call ahead. They they don't mind the call uh, on the little places. They're just happy to hear that somebody's coming because some of these places get get very few visitors. Oh, okay, okay, I get it. That's pretty cool. I like that. Uh, so how can people learn more about Roadside America? Well, we have a free we have a free newsletter on the. Uh, that you can sign up for on the website. We don't, oh, yeah. you know, we don't mail out that often, uh, and it's usually just links to the latest stories. We do have some people who follow us that way. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so if you follow us on Facebook or Twitter, you're gonna. Uh, uh, Twitter one is nice because we're uh, also sort of cherry picking from the news, weird uh, or offbeat attraction news, and then kind of running it through our sensibilities and saying, hey, this is something you need to know about. So, uh, and then Facebook is, um, you know, we're posting the links to the latest stories and the things that we've seen. Okay, cool. Uh, any last comments or advice to travelers or motorcycle riders seeking to find some of these attractions and other things? Well, yeah, well, um, we add new places pretty much every day. We're adding something new, but some of these attractions don't have an infinite life, right? So if you see something on the road, you should take the time to stop. Or if you read something on our website and you say, you know, I, I should see that one day, you should probably see it as soon as you can. Uh, the naked bookstore owner in Quartzsite, Arizona, you know, there's a guy for 30 years who ran a bookstore and without wearing clothes. He's He just died. So, you know, if you were planning to see that next summer, you're out of luck. Uh, Barney Smith in San Antonio, Texas, has been running the uh, toilet seat museum uh, for decades, and he just retired, and the seats have been put in storage. So, you know, that's that's out of the question until it reopens at a at a gallery or something. And then you had mentioned Wild West City, so that's one where, hey, if it opens and you've never been there, you should probably see it before it you know closes again. <laughs> uh, and you know, a lot of these little places, they do uh, the ones that charge admission, you know, are, are living off of the the merchandise they sell and the sure. admission they charge. And, you know, some of them are not not that costly. And then the ones that don't cost anything, they live off of you going in and being interested in their hobby or, or their obsession and what they've created. And you can donate usually to those places. So that keeps them going for others to see. So basically just get out there and go see these things before they go away. Yeah, I, I would say because we when I look back, we have a Hall of Immortals section of our website, which is the best intention we had was whenever somebody really important to us and, and our experience out there passed away, we'd put them in there, but you know, we got busy and we were kind of behind on the, on the hall there. But, uh, but yeah, the, sooner or later, these sort of characters go away. In some cases, there might be a, a, a relative who takes over the mantle. 
Uh, and, um, you know, in some cases, it, it just disappears. It gets auctioned off. The places just are gone. Wow. That's something. I, I, I just think it's, it's a shame that a lot of these things go away and people just ignore it. But there, there's so many out there. Get out there. Go see them. Go find them. Take pictures of everything and find something new and send it to these guys. You know, that's what you got to do. You know, if you're a welder, get, get all the junk and just create something and put it in your front yard and then, then you call Doug. <laughs> or, or just at least submit a tip and read the, uh, the tip guidelines. Yes, first. read the tip guidelines. My God, people, do it right. So, <laughs> Doug, I want to thank you very much for joining me here on the podcast and talking to me about all this really cool stuff. It's been great having you. Yeah, thanks, Doug. All right, take care. Thank you for joining me and Doug here on episode 204, where we talked about Roadside America. To learn more, you can go to their website at roadsideamerica.com. Links will be in the show notes and, of course, on the Motorcycle Man website at motorcycleman.us. Hey, don't forget to check out our fellow podcasters, YouTubers, bloggers, vloggers, whose links you will find on our links page. All of these media outlets and many more out there do great things to promote and encourage our sport and passion. So, from Tim Buck to Chris the Joker, Justin Shoes, and me, Ted Wrongway, your host, thanks for listening to the Motorcycle Men Podcast, where we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Enjoy your life, kids. <laughs> <laughs>